lust in us. Um, oh, Lord, we confess. We confess that we are all sinners. We confess that without you, we would die in our sin. The Bible is clear, for all have sinned. There's no one immune to that. We've all fallen short of your glory, your standard, your personhood. But we also confess, Lord, that you died on a cross and pardoned our sins completely. You were just and righteous, and you forgave us of all our transgressions. And we confess that, Lord, both in song and preaching and testimony to one another, Lord. Because we are in awe of what you've done. What a joy today to sing with your children. From all walks of life, all different economics, different backgrounds, we all are here, Lord, because of you. None of us, none of us stand in your presence on our own righteousness, on our own lineage. We are here because of you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for offering such a perfect sacrifice that would cover all of our sins, past, present, and future. We don't look for any more. It was completed, Lord. And so with joy we sing to you this morning. Father, we think of those who could not be here. Probably many were at home singing in front of their computers or TV screens as they're watching now. Many who are sick and not feeling well. Others going through treatment. Lord, we miss them and we wish they were here. But we know that as they suffer, Lord, we pray for them. And we love them. And we ask, Lord, your blessing and healing and strength and all the things that we know you can do, your will be done in their lives. Lord, we pray that they would be encouraged today. We think our missionaries scattered around the world doing things that we are not able to do from here, Lord, but we can hold the rope, we can lower them down, we can be faithful supporters, we can give and pray, and we can be missionaries in our neighborhood. And so we pray that the gospel would Continue to go globally, Lord. You would draw people and you would use Riverbend to do that. Draw people from every walk of life, Lord, from every tongue and tribe. Fulfill your commandment, Lord. And use us to do that. Lord, we thank you that we now can turn to the Word of God and find sufficiency there. We can find truth we can hold on to and we can grow by, Lord. And so may we devour truth in you and all in a worshipful manner this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Entitled the sermon this morning called Lessons from the Good Shepherd. Lessons from the Good Shepherd. Boy, do I enjoy studying the life of Christ. Uh, has, have you ever thought that and say, thought to yourself, well, why? Why did God record the life of Christ four times within this manuscript, within the Word of God? Do you think that's important? Do you think it's important to recognize that God wrote down the life of the Lord Jesus Christ through these inspired men by the Holy Spirit, every jot and tittle of it, um, every iota of it? Do you think that was important, that God wanted it written four times down to us? I think that's really important. I think it's important that we are students of the life of Christ. 
When you think about the life of Christ, to realize that it's, it spills out throughout all of the scriptures. It was the promise of Genesis 3, 15. I, my son will come is what is promised there, and he will crush the head of the serpent. And, and we can follow the lineage of Christ and that promise all the way through the Old Testament. Every Red Sea split, every water gushing from rocks, every giant slain, every one of those stories teaches us a redemptive train of Christ coming. And we can revel in the Old Testament. And then when you get into the New Testaments, we're overwhelmed by the epistles and their Christ-centeredness. Everything comes off this life of Christ. Everything was leading towards the life of Christ to the death, burial, and resurrection, and everything spins off of it from there. You can't help but look at a book of Romans and understand justification comes by Christ alone. That's what that book's about. You can't help but study the book of Philippians and say, wow, Jesus is the joy giver, and you can rejoice in him. You can't help but marvel in Colossians of the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or turn to the book of Hebrews and see him as the great mediator, the high priest, the one that we get in the presence of God through. And over and over and over in the scriptures, we see the life of Christ, the person of Christ on display. And so I think God wrote down his life four different times because it's important to study it. It's important to know the life of Christ. How many, when you became a Christian, when God saved you, did somebody say, hey, go read the book of John? How many times have you told somebody to go read the book of John? Why? Because that's our Savior. <laughs> he's in the beginning, and he's God. And he was equal with God. And he stands with God, and he's a creator and sustainer, and yet he lives this perfect, sinless life, showing his power and authority through all his miracles and all that he does, and then he makes his way to a cross and dies alone for you and I. We study the life of Christ. And I think when this large portion, if you take your Bible and just take the sections of the gospel and see how big the gospel recording is on the life of Christ, it reminds us how important. Well, listen, when you think about the life of Christ, it's great to emulate as an under-shepherd, that's what pastors are. Pomero is the word we get for pastor-shepherd. I think I probably should study the chief shepherd. Wouldn't that be the true? And I think we see that in this text. I wanted to show you a picture here. Um, I think Troy's going to put up here. Um, this is our first church. Um, we were just there at Christmas time. You can leave it up there for a minute, Troy. Um, and you, you all, I think many of you met Jerry uh, when he was here during missions conference. Jerry mentored me for a lot of years. And, and by God's grace, he, he moved on and started another ministry and left me in this valley. Gene and I, and I think we had two boys at the time. Um, and we were started a church in just a, a little community hall. And then this church emptied out, it, it emptied out. There was just nobody using it. And the guy, I don't know, there was an old guy that left. And a long story there. And, and we ended up, someone just calling us and said, hey, would you like this building? I said, uh, yeah, what comes with it? You can just have it. I said, okay. <laughs> we came in, and we had a, a, one other family had moved uh, recently, an older widow and uh, two, two older couple, one, a pair of uh, husband and wife, and then Gina and I and our two babies. And we started it. And it was all built 
in reality, by the love of Christ and God putting mentors in my life to help me. And many of Sundays, I would preach. It's, it's built on a pile of rocks. You can't quite see it, but it's, it was built in 1863. I would preach. There was literally, you know, this row. <laughs> and somebody holding a baby, just like this, and using my wife. Um, or she would do the children ministry, which would be my two boys. <laughs> and, and like she is today, she's not here because she's teaching children's ministry um, back, back behind us here. Um, and and we, would, we would teach God's word. And one of the things that I learned was mentoring was such an important part of it. When we moved to this valley, um, Jerry said, hey, you know, we've learned to run cows inside fences. You know, running cows inside fences is one thing because you're inside fences. And this area behind that picture is a, a valley that is 70 miles long by 7 miles wide. And then it starts the Great Basin that flows all the way to the Great Salt Lake. So it's really in the middle of nowhere. Well, you turn your cows out on, you know, a half a million acres, <laughs> and you've got to find them, because that's all your dollars running around out there. You've got to get them home. So Jerry said, hey, pick somebody in the valley. This will be a way to get into their life and learn from them. And so I picked a man named John Carey. I went and met with him. I said, John, I'm, I, I, I'm pretty good with my horses. I've worked with cows inside fences, but I've never worked on the range. Would you mind if I tag along? And he said, Sure. And I rode with him for almost a year, that outfit. It was a large outfit, ran lots and lots of mama cows and lots of feeder cattle as well. And so I learned how to run cows on the range, and he mentored me along through that. And, and I became a pretty good hand because of that man. And just like Jerry trained me to, to eventually pastor this church and start ministry on our own, so I got trained in other areas. But all of it, all of it um, is coming from the chief shepherd. And I, and I love to think about how the Lord shepherds shepherds. In this text, particularly, as we turn our attention to this text, he's got these men with them. He's just sent them out. They've just come back. Now we're going to take a little vacation and download. And the, and the chief shepherd's going to teach them. It's just about mentoring so much in here. But it doesn't go according to the plan of the disciples. So this morning, let's look through this text that uh, Dave read for us. Mark chapter 6, 33 through 34. You want to get your Bibles out and follow along here. Because this is lessons from the good shepherd. Lessons from the chief shepherd. I, I was going to title the sermon, Going to School with the Good Shepherd. <laughs> because he's going to take them to school a little bit and teach them who he is and what he is about so that they too could someday preach Christ in all of his glory. And boy, did they. Peter and James and John, James lost his head over it. John and Peter went to prison multiple times. Peter was beheaded, excuse me, Peter was um, crucified upside down. James was beheaded. John was banished to an island and so forth. Disciple after disciple all suffered, and they, but they followed their chief shepherd. And so this is part, this is early on in that shepherding the shepherds, as we would say. So let's look at a couple of uh, thoughts here as we look into this text. Number one, the good shepherd and the lost sheep. Look at verse 33 and 34 with me. The people saw them going and many recognized them. And they ran there together on foot from all of the cities. And they got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Well, you'll notice there in verse 33 that people saw them going. I, I thought, well, the, knowing, thinking ministry-wise, I thought the disciples probably said, well, 
there goes the vacation. <laughs> you know, they were going to get some face time with Jesus. That was the whole idea. Remember at the end of the last text, he says, let's get away. Let's go somewhere remote. Let's go somewhere where we can download, where we can grow together and pray together. That was the whole idea that Jesus put to them. And then they get into the boats. They shove off, and they're heading away for a vacation with Jesus. And then the phone rings. <laughs> and somebody passes away. Or, or in this case, they pull up to the shore, and all the people they just left are there. But overwhelming they must have felt at times. I'm sure they were disappointed. And remember, this crowd is getting bigger, not smaller. And the reason it's getting bigger is not only is Jesus doing all these things, but he just sent these disciples out. They're healing now. They're gathering a falling of themselves. And they're going, there's just not one person healing. All his disciples are healing. And so the masses are coming. The masses are coming. And if they thought that they were going to have a little quiet time with Jesus as they pulled up to the shore, that all went out the door. But remember, most of this crowd was seeking really a wow factor. We, we realize that through the text, and we'll see at the end of this lesson as we move into, move into communion, that most of them leave him. They're, they're looking for the next incredible uh, feat that Jesus is going to do. They're looking to have their bellies filled. They're looking to have somebody healed. And I think I would do the same thing if I had a loved one, and I would pursue him with all my might. But most of them were not there because they were sinners. Most of them were not there looking for someone who could deal with their sin. They were there for political gain or healing or feeding of some sort. But notice in, in verse 33, the latter part, they said, the people saw them going and many recognized them and they ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And, and you could just see the scene, right? This mob goes, hmm, let's take an educated guess. They're cutting across the ocean. Let's go in that direction, and maybe we'll see them there. Luke 9 records this. It says the crowds welcomed them when they arrived. <laughs> so they beat them there. And, and, and so there's this welcoming committee. Maybe one the disciples may not have thought, but they were looking for Jesus. But then verse 34, we start to see the master at work here. We start to see this good shepherd with these lost sheep. Verse 34 says, Jesus, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd. And it's large. We're going to see that it's at least 5,000 men. And it's a male masculine um, noun there. So it's probably women and children. Could be excess of 20,000. Easy. Easy. So this is a large crowd. And look what he says. He felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. I think this verse starts to describe to you and I the heart of the good shepherd. If you want to know what Jesus is about, this verse teaches you a lot about who he is. Think about this as you look down to your notes. A, he is compassionate. One of the marks of a good shepherd is compassion. There's too many passages account where Christ is recorded showing compassion. Just look in your Bible and walk through the story of Jesus over and over and over. He shows compassion. A leopard will come to him. A bleeding woman. A little boy who's demon-possessed. A little girl who had died. One after another, the Bible says Jesus had compassion. He had compassion. Mark chapter 8, we're going to see just in the next few weeks, 
If you just look ahead at chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, he's going to repeat a very similar miracle. It says, In those days when there was again a large crowd that had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said, I feel compassion on these people. I feel compassion on these people. The good shepherd is compassionate. He's not hard and cold. That means he doesn't think of himself. He has, a, he has an agape love that's always considering the, what the needs of others are. He has such a great lesson for us to study. Think about a passage like Romans 5, 6. You know this text. For while we were what? Still sinners. <laughs> while we were yet or still sinners, your text would say. Not when we were all cleaned up and we, we looked all good and, and we're all ready for you, Jesus. <laughs> Oh no, oh no. God pours his compassion out on you and I when we're desperate. That's, that's the mark of a Christian. We get to a point where we, we have nothing to offer him. We, we have nothing of our own righteous. There's none good, no, not one. There's none righteous. Everything is just filthy rags and all of our works. It is at that point when Christ comes in while we're still at that point and has compassion on you. And he opens your heart to him, floods in the knowledge of who he is, and he he rescues you. (laughs) If that's not compassion, I don't know what is. Jesus speaks, excuse me, the scriptures, the prophets speak of this kind of compassion. I don't have time to turn there, but think about this text. I think maybe you know it. Ezekiel chapter 16, prophet Ezekiel is reminding the people who are now headed to to judgment, they're headed, headed into captivity. He says that God looked upon them, and he uses this term, and it's very graphic. He says, I came to you when you were still in your blood. When you were laying there. The picture is a newborn infant, still in its blood, helpless. Absolutely helpless. And if nobody comes along and picks that baby up, it will die. That's salvation. You see that? If Christ doesn't come along and give you new birth, give you new life, you die. That's compassion. And that's what Jesus does. That's why you and I love him so much. That's why we sing the way we sing. Why we strive by his grace to love each other and to to read his word and to walk. Not because we have to, but because we get to. Because this compassionate Savior looked upon us and had compassion for us. And so while we are yet sinners at the right time. Man, is he at the right time, isn't he? I had an older man recently say, boy, I wish the Lord would have saved me earlier. I said, oh, brother. Your testimony was what I needed. When he saved you, how he saved you, and he is most glorified at the time he saved you. Don't ever look for something different. Some of you in here were saved at young ages. Some of you were saved in middle ages and some older, and some of you aren't saved. But when Christ comes, his compassion overwhelms you. You know that's the work of the Spirit coming upon you, realizing that God is doing something that I don't deserve. That is a compassionate Savior. He's worth bowing the knee. I think this is the mark of a healthy church. Are we a compassionate church? Look with me at Philippians chapter 2. I want to mark this because 
I believe God is working on us and causing us to be a compassionate church. Paul, writing of the great joy giver, the Lord Jesus Christ, pins these words by the inspired spirit work in his heart as he writes out these words. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ... Remember, it's all, it's all coming, all the letters are all coming off of Christ, they're all Christ-centered. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection and compassion, if there's any affection or compassion in this room for one another, true affection, true compassion, true forgiveness, all of those things that we experience, it comes from Christ. He goes on to tell us how this looks. It says, make my joy complete, Paul says, by being of the same mind. Being the same mind. Well, how do you do that? You put your life under him. And when you and you and you and all of us put our life under him, we come in the same mind and we say, Lord, we're following you. We're a different group of people. We're, we're, we, we come from all different walks and races and all that. But we follow you. And he brings our mind together through the word of God and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, oh, my joy is made complete when this happens. United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Well, what's that purpose? What is the purpose of the church? To exalt and magnify Christ through the teaching and preaching and living of his word. That's what we do. And then he goes on to say, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. But I mean, just think about the scene we're in in Mark 6. Jesus looks at the crowd and he goes, I, I feel compassion for them. If I'm one of the disciples, I'm going, well, here we go again. <laughs> there goes lunch. Because remember it said he was so busy he couldn't even eat. Right? There goes the vacation. There goes that time when I, had, I needed to ask Jesus that question. I'm not going to get that. <laughs> but not Jesus. <laughs> See, he does nothing out of selfish ambition. He, is, he, he's, he doesn't have empty conceit. But with humility in mind, he regards one another more important than ourselves. More important than ourselves. He's always thinking of us. <laughs> and that's what he wants us to do. Have you not seen somebody at church for a while? Maybe they're going through cancer treatment. Do you know that? I mean, he's just simply saying, I haven't seen that person. I'm going to call him. I'm going to write him a letter. I'm going to send him an email, text, whatever you do. Getting a hold of somebody, having compassion for somebody. See, Christ draws that out. In a church our side, it's very difficult for the elders to hold everything and keep our hands on everything, watch everything. Oh, we need a church that's compassionate. Someone in the room you don't know, you see there, sits down, don't know the name, face. Hey, my name's Scott. So glad you're here. Show compassion. Take my seat. Notice he goes on to say, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. We do have to look for our own personal interests, right? We have to lead, eat and live and breathe, but not merely, right? This is the difference of a Christian. He isn't merely just going through this life, getting whatever he can get, accomplishing whatever he can accomplish. Yes, we have jobs and families and life and accountability and friendships and all those things that God has joyfully given us, but they are not our life. Colossians says, he is our life. Isn't that a big difference? And then verse 5, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in 
Christ Jesus. So number one, he was compassionate. That's a mark. That's a mark of a shepherd. Be compassionate. Boy, you don't care about the people God puts into your life. And you constantly are consumed with self. God may remove those people. And he'll put them somewhere where they can be cared for. Be compassionate. Jesus is our Savior and He is our chief shepherd. He is our model. He is our example. He was compassionate. And sometimes I know, uh, and I've had a wife who was a mother of four, I know at times she was so worn out. And moms, it's difficult at times. Dads, you're worn out coming from home from work. You've been treading in the world and your feet are dirty with the things of the world. There's times to come home and you go, I need everybody's attention. I need it now. <laughs> Or there's times to come home and be compassionate. Sweetheart, how was your day? I was praying for you in this area. Compassion. Are you compassionate towards one another? Number two, let's go back to our text, verse 34. He came upon the shore, saw this large crowd. Number one, he felt compassion for them. And then number two here in our outline, B, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was always gathering. Your outline would be gathering there. Jesus always gathers. He gathers people together. He's very good at that. Jerry taught me, Scott, get people together. Get them together. Let them interact. Share the gospel with them. Teach them how to love one another as you were taught to love one another. Teach, gather, gather, teach. Bring them together. This is what Jesus did so well. He was always gathering those his father gave him. And whoever the father gave him, the Bible says in John chapter 6, he would lose none of them. None of them. So he's always gathering. And and we're just different. We're probably like the disciples. I wish these people would leave. (laughs) Jesus going, I see that large crowd. Bring them in. Bring them in. Let's teach them. Let's feed them. Let's care for them. What a, what a difference in it. Luke chapter 15, 4 through 7, just listen to this. What man among you, if he had a hundred sheep and has one of them, uh, and, has one, and one of them is lost, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which was lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he laid it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, here now, Jesus speaking here, there, is, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Wow. So one of the reasons God gathers, the way Jesus gathers, is he's looking for that lost one in there. Who was in that crowd? Who was in that crowd? John 10 says, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. He's gathering. He's always bringing the flock together. Third, see there, he feeds. He's always feeding. Notice in the text at the end of verse 34, it says, he began to teach them. This doesn't get people together for, well, for the sake of, you know, hey, look how many numbers we had. (laughs) He didn't do that. His goal is to feed them. 
So Scott, why does River Bend preach the way it preaches? Because God, this is what God wants us to do. Preach the word. Feed the people, Scott. Feed the people, elders of Riverbend. Feed them my word, not your thoughts, not, not your, your views. Feed them my word. That's what they need. They may not even know they need it, but feed it to them. Preach word. Work in it. Stay in it. Verse by verse, word by word. That's the truth you need. And Jesus, when he got this crowd together, he had compassion on them. He gathered them, and he taught them. Isn't that incredible? He taught them. He didn't sit around and say, hey, have you guys been counting how many miracles I've done since I've been here? Did you see the one with the leopard hand? That was pretty cool. He doesn't do that. He gets together and he teaches them. He feeds them. And we know in this text, not only does he feed them spiritually, he's going to feed them physically. But this is the greatest need of every man, woman, and child is to know Jesus. That is man's greatest, greatest need. It's a great line when you witness to somebody. To, to just ask that question. I think Tom um, from Finland, Rukula, said that question. It might have been him. You know, what is man's greatest need? Just ask that question to somebody. I mean, they're going to tell you social issues and, and division between the Republicans and the Democrats. And, I mean, they're going to tell you all kinds of stuff. And guess what you get to do with them? You get to say, I think there's a greater need than that. You need your sins forgiven. Every man, woman, and child needs their sins forgiven. Without the forgiveness of sin, there is only death that awaits. And you will have an opportunity to show, hey, this is what I think the greatest need is. And this is what the Lord did for me. He forgave me my sins. It's greater than any social reform you could ever find in all of the world. Because it has eternal value. Man needs to understand who he is. And it's supernatural. This is supernatural. You go, well, Scott, I can't save anybody. You're right. You can't. And praise the Lord, we can't. I, I'm so grateful I don't have to save anybody. You know, how, you know what kind of weight that is? I, I can't make any mistakes in my sermon. I can't use the word um. I got to be oratorically perfect. And I can't make any doctrinal mistakes at all. I mean, and i got to know everything when I teach to you because if it's based on you making some free will decision and me giving it to you, we're all in trouble because this cowboy stumbles. That's the great thing about feeding people is you can tell them it's Christ who saves you. I am a messenger. I'm just an ambassador. I've been sent from the king. I've come to tell you your greatest need in all this earth is that your sins are forgiven. And you can do it with compassion and love. You don't have to stand on a microphone and scream at people. You can do it with love. You can build relationships with neighbors and friends and coworkers. And you can begin to look for that opportunity to say, here is your greatest need. It was mine. And I know it's yours. Feed them. Feed them. The mark of a healthy church is always feeding the hungry. The psalmist said in Psalms 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see. Friend, have you tasted and seen the goodness of God? Do you know you are a sinner? Do you know you deserve the flames of hell and that Christ raised you and resurrected you and gave you new life from that? I mean, do you believe that? 
Do you believe that? Have you tasted? Peter jumps on, I think, probably referring to this text. 1 Peter 2, 1 says, Therefore put aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Pretty ugly verse, huh? 1 Peter 2, 1. Then he says in verse 2, But be like newborn babes, listen to this, who long for the pure milk of the word, so that they may grow in respects to salvation. One of the most beautiful, natural sights in all of Creation is the nursing of young. God has given a mom everything that baby needs. And, and there, that, that child desires that. And, and, and so we too, if we have tasted and seen, the verse goes, says, goes on to say, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, you desire the things of God. It's a mark of a healthy church. Come in and say, Pastor, preach the word to us today. I need it. Tell other people that they need the word of God. They don't need stories and, and, and funny things that all go around. I mean, they need the word. Teach it to us verse by verse. Tell us what God has to say. We hear the world all the time. It's on the news. It's everywhere you go, fighting and complaining and all that. So we don't need that. We need the word so we can understand a worldly, a worldview, a biblical worldview of that. Oh, feed us. And if you're a wanderer, if you're one of those lost sheep without a shepherd, we invite you by the grace of God to come home. Come home. Christ is the creator of all humanity. He's the creator of all things. Come home to your creator. Confess your sins and repent and turn. 5,000 men at this feeding. How many of them saw they needed a savior? Second thought, the good shepherd and the, and the shepherds in training. The good shepherd and the shepherds in training. While Jesus was spiritually feeding the sheep, the disciples took it upon themselves to decide that the people were hungry and need to leave. Look at verse 35 and 36. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go to surrounding countrysides and villages and buy themselves something to eat, i.e., get them out of here. We want some time with you. Well, humbly speaking, I think I probably would have done the same thing. If Jesus was there <laughs> and I get a chance to talk to him, I'd say, uh, yeah, Aaron, let me have him. And so I understand it, but it's probably late. It's the, the wording in the original language gives an idea of late afternoon, early evening. And the disciples were looking forward to this FaceTime with Christ. They're probably hungry themselves, right? Not only did they already do things that morning with Jesus on the other side of the Galilean Sea, they had oared their way across the sea as well. And with no break, because the people were waiting for them. But Jesus' disciples had landed in this desolate area, um, uh, the timing, the chronological timing of this event is springtime. And so you'll see in the text where it seems to be grassy there is probably a beautiful setting. There's people who will take you over there and show you where they think this may have happened on a kind of a natural hillside that, that uh, the Lord could have talked and, and his voice could have carried, possibly might have happened there. But the disciples suggested dismissing them. It's time to send them back. But in verse 37, Jesus drops this wow factor statement. Notice what he does, verse 37. But he answered them, that's the disciples, 
you give them something to eat. <laughs> Man, I want to see the replay on their faces. I mean, you're talking about thousands of people. You give them something to eat. See, I think the good shepherd is going to take the shepherds in training to school right now. He's about to test their faith. Jesus is going to put them in a situation where there is no human solution. Anybody been there? <laughs> Anybody right there right now? There's no human solution? Doctors have said this, or my checkbook says this, or <laughs> whatever it is. I think this is what Jesus is doing. John's account of this, of this uh, activity here of feeding this 5,000 is, is helpful. John chapter 6, verse 5 through 7 says this, Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing the large crowd coming to him, he said to Philip, remember Philip's just not in John 14, he's actually in some other passages. In fact, most of everything he does is recorded in the book of John. Where, Jesus says this to Philip, could you imagine Philip? Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? <laughs> and Philip's probably going, me? <laughs> I could just imagine that scene. You know, there's a massive crowd. And he goes, uh, where are we going to go buy bread for all these people? And th- this he was saying to them, and here's the key to this verse, for he knew himself what he was already about to do. So he's testing them. Verse 37, end of verse 37 He says, and they said to him, this is the response, shall we go spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? Well, 200 denarii was just short of a year's wage for an average working man. In other words, the disciples are responding with a ton of skepticism, a ton of doubt, and that this feat is not, this is is an impossible feat, Lord. We can't do this. What are you doing, Lord? I mean, ever ask that question? What are you doing, Lord? <laughs> I, I think it's actually okay to do that as long as you are not um, uh, rebellious in your thought. I, I ask the Lord all the time, Lord, I don't know what you're doing here. Give me faith and trust you. I, I think we all do that. And you should do that. David cries out often, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? He asks of the Lord these questions and at times you turn back and then you go just like David did, but you're God. There's none like you. Uh, you know, I will trust you. <laughs> and so he asked Philip these questions. And how quickly the disciples had forgotten what God had just done. They just got back, right? Remember they got sent out by twos? Remember this? And they were casting out demons and healing the sick and I mean... I mean, woohoo! I mean, they're having a ball out there. And they're going, Lord, 200 denarii to feed, and we're not even going to feed them with that much money, let alone probably, doubtlessly, they didn't even have that. The possibility that Jesus might create something, that the Creator who's standing amongst them might just create something, never crossed their minds. Never crossed their minds. And so the test goes on. Look at verse 38. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. (laughs) I like that phrase. You can get standing around like, uh, none. Well, go look. (laughs) You ever said that to your boys? (laughs) Son, where's that wrench? I don't know. Well, go look. (laughs) It's it's astounding to kind of think of what's happening here. Can you imagine the disciples murmuring, going through the crowd? This is crazy. (laughs) 
there's 20,000 people here, and we're just supposed to go find some lunch meat? I mean, it, it is actually comical what's going through the minds of a sinner, right? And so he says, go look. And when they found out, they said, five, five loaves and two fishes is all we have. Again, John fills in the blanks here. They actually found a small boy, and he had five barley loaves and two fish. And these were probably just these hand-breaded cakes and these two, two small fish that they would either smoke or pickle. And they could tear it apart and put a little bit of fish on each piece of bread and eat. But it was no more than a child's meal. This small meal, I mean, think about what's going to happen here. This small meal set in the Creator's hands is going to feed this multitude. I know lots of people have given sermons about this small boy. He's not even really in the story in most cases. Certainly God used him. I just want to meet his mom. <laughs> huh, moms? What do you say? You know, because, hey, mom, I want to go follow Jesus. We're going to run around the lake and try to catch him before he gets to the other side. You can see, well, hold on. Here's a couple of pieces of bread and some fish. Take those with you. You're going to get hungry. I hope she's saved. Because I want to meet her. Because I'm impressed with moms who love their children and, and try to take care of them. But this isn't much. Notice verse 39 and 40. Jesus commands them to all sit down by groups on the green grass. So we kind of have an idea of this setting alongside the Sea of Galilee. He's been teaching to them. Now he's about ready to, he's fed them spiritually. Now he's about ready to feed them physically. And notice this, they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. Well, the master, the good shepherd here, is in complete control. In complete control. Jesus sits them in organized units so that they can be clearly recorded of how many are there. I think that's fascinating. And the commander-in-chief quickly subdues this absolutely, probably crazy crowd, right? You have anywhere from five to 20,000 people, suggestively, always sick people trying to get to Jesus. Can you imagine the panic that gets pushed towards Jesus? And in a moment, he's got them sitting in hundreds and fifties, all under control, having everything he wants, separating everybody out, going, this is the way we're going to do things. That's amazing to me. You know, I said, oh, hey, let's all break up in actual perfect amount of groups and all go out these doors separately. <laughs> we have lots of people watching our doors and protecting us here. You need to know that. But it would be chaos, wouldn't it? Not with a master. See, see, the master, he's the chief shepherd. And he knows his flock and he's got them there. He loves them, he has compassion, he's gathered them, he's taught them, and now he's gonna feed them physically. And so he separates them, just like he will separate someday. <laughs> now, I, I thought about this a long time this week. I thought, Lord, in an instant, you separated all these people. Matthew 23 says that he'll separate the sheep and the goats like that. Because sheep are marked. They're marked with the blood of Christ. We're marked with redeemed people. He knows us. He sees us. He calls us and we come right out. And so for him to separate is not a difficulty. And though it is a physical thing here in this text, I don't want to make more than what the text says, it is amazing how quickly he can command them to sit down in verse 39. He commands them and they sit down and he puts them in groups. And so they know how many were there. They know how many are there because Jesus set the stage. Remember John chapter 6, 6, he said he himself knew exactly what he was about to do. 
Third thought, the good shepherd is the creator. Verses 41 through 40, 41 through 44. The good shepherd is about to create from a little tiny lunch a meal that will fill tens of thousands of people. Verse 41, he says he took the five loaves and the two fishes, looking up towards heaven. He blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples and set them before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all. One accord with his father, you can see this, he never works outside of the father. He says, whatever the father's works are doing, I'm doing as well. So him and the father are in one accord, never separated in this, they're doing this together. And as he looks to heaven, he recognizes the father. He blesses the food in which he was about to create. One little kid asked me one time, he said, Pastor, why do we pray before our meals? I said, because Jesus did. Good answer, mom and dad. Why do we pray before our meals? Because Jesus did. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul furthers this explanation that we give gratitude and thanksgiving from all the food that God has given us. We thank him for that. But first and foremost, we pray because Jesus did. Pray before your meal. I don't care if you're in public or not. One of the things Gene and I have enjoyed living here in the southern states a little more because you don't see it out west is often in a restaurant we see people pray. We don't see that out in California. Pray. Give thanks to the Lord Jesus for what he has given you. I don't care if you're at Cracker Barrel or at home because I know a bunch of you are headed there. Give thanks because Jesus did. But think about this. He seeks no counsel. He seeks no counsel. He doesn't go, hey, disciples, what do you think? You know, you got a game plan here? (laughs) He seeks no counsel. He needs no one else to do this. He speaks because he is the creator, and he does because he is the creator. Acts chapter 17, Paul on Mars Hill says he doesn't need anything. (laughs) He doesn't need anything. You and I are so needy. We are a bunch of neediest people. We need people. We need things, don't we? We can't survive without food and water. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need counsel. He, he already had it in his mind. This was laid down from the foundations of the world, what he was going to do. He's just trying to teach his disciples to have faith, to trust in him. He's in control of all people's life. Paul goes on and says, since he himself gives to all people life, breath, and all things, he knows what they need. He has compassion on them. He's gathered them. He has taught them. And now he's going to execute his plan. And Jesus here, plan was to feed them. He designed it. He originated it. He orchestrated it. He's not embarrassed I love this. I, I mean, I, I'd probably be one of the disciples like, Jesus is holding up these fish. We're going to pray for the meal. <laughs> Two fish, five little cakes. I'd pray going. You know, I, he's not embarrassed. He's boldly holding them up to the Father and saying, I'm thanking you for this, Father, for about what we are about ready to do. He's not embarrassed at all because he knows exactly what he's going to do. He's planned it. He planned this trip, he planned these people, he planned this miracle, he planned this place, and he planned that meal. Because he's God. He's everything God is. 
He shares that nature. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God. Oh, so many people. There's a series going around on TV now with some guy, and he's, you know, searching around, talking to everybody about God. And if you watch it for a little bit, which is all I can take, is your God is whatever you want him to be is the end of the story. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see the God, the only God, you look to Jesus. He explained him, John 1.18. He is the exegesis of God. No one has seen the Father. You look upon Christ. You look upon God. He is in their midst here. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. He's going to take invisible things and make them happen here. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him and by him. That's for his worship. Look at verse 41. Middle of it, he blessed the food. He broke the loaves. He kept giving them to the disciples. He's passing this out, right? (laughs) I mean, we have these offering baskets go around. Can you kind of picture that basket? Oh, that's full. Next guy. That's full. (laughs) And they just keep coming. It just keeps coming. You, you can see the language in there, you know, just even in the English. It just keeps coming. He keeps giving it to them. He keeps giving it to them. He keeps giving it to them. This is what he does. There's no human explanation for this miracle. There are no human explanations for the miracles of Christ except that he is God. And we believe by faith. So we don't have to run around and prove everything. If you want to prove everything, prove God, prove all his miracles, you're not living by faith. You're living by proof. Did he tell you to live by proof? He said, live by faith. And so we believe. The miracle clearly took a constant creation, right? It just had to be regenerating itself somehow. There's more, there's more, there's more. The only place we always see this is very similar. is 1 Kings 17, Elijah with the widow of Zarephath. Remember her? Elijah comes into town and he says, I need a drink of water. Uh, she goes, okay, I'll get that for you. And while you're there, get me some cakes. She goes, well, uh, I just got enough flour and oil. My son and I are going to eat and then we're going to die. <laughs> Have you read that? First Kings 17? And he goes, yeah, okay, go make, get me some water, get me some cake. She goes, <laughs> you know the story. The flour just keeps coming, the oil just keeps coming. It's an ending. And God provides for her, and I think it's the same thing. He breaks apart these fish and this bread, and it just keeps coming. These miracles are meant to prove to you the power and authority the Lord Jesus has. They clearly teach us who he is. They are supernatural, and we as Christians believe every bit of them. And yes, it defies logic, and, or at least human logic, but not the logic of God. He said, let there be light, and that happened. <laughs> right? And all the liberals that question the Bible all the time, and all the liberal theologians that always attack, well, we just don't quite see the supernatural as really part of the original text. Oh, my goodness. Wait till supernatural Jesus stands in front of you and says, depart from me. I never knew you. It took his supernatural work to deny himself and die on a cross and save us. Think about that. 
this wasn't difficult for him. He says, Lord, we're about to do this. It's really for these guys. But thank you. This is not difficult for him. Verse 42, look at this, says, and they all ate and they were satisfied. The word, the Greek word means to, literally, to be fattened. They were full. You feed cattle, you go, this cattle look good, they're fat. That means money. Fat cattle. They're full. This is the idea of the world. They were full. They had everything they needed. Same words used in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Satisfied. And it's an outward teaching of an inward principle, isn't it? Jesus can satisfy you. You can chase the religions of the world. You can chase the philosophies of the world. You can chase politics. You can chase all that, and you will never be satisfied because there's another election coming in less than two years, and they're already getting ready. I'm already tired of listening to it. You want to look to that to be satisfied? Is that what your hope is? Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 30, excuse me, verse 43 says, and when they picked up the 12 baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish, verse, they, they picked those all up. And verse 44 says there was 5,000 men, probably 20 plus K, and loaves of bread. And so when they were all done, here's what Jesus does. He puts in the hands of each of his disciples the reminder of his power and authority. And there's people that try to make all big deals out of the 12 baskets and all that stuff. I, I don't know that I'd go too far with this. I think Jesus is saying, hey, under shepherd, Hey, you who are going to preach the birth of the church, look down in your basket and remind yourself who this is about. And so here they are. Uh, John, I have about the same amount I started with. What about you? <laughs> and everybody's laying on their backs and they look pretty full. What a beauty. This is satisfaction in Jesus Christ. This is why we don't teach a bunch of psychology and a bunch of all that stuff. We teach Christ. This is what you need. Your marriage needs it. Your parenting needs it. Your workplace needs it. Everything you have needs it. If you study the life of Christ, if you study who he is, he will satisfy you. And yes, life is difficult and all kinds of us are going through hard times in here, but I'm telling you, your hope is Jesus. Your hope is Jesus. Don't look for another. Don't look for another. Colossians 2, and we'll end with this and move to the table, but listen to this. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells. In Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells. What God is, Jesus is. They share that nature together. But verse 11, I want you to think about this verse. And in him, that's Jesus, you have been made complete. Plerao. Perfect, passive participle. You, you added nothing to it, and you got everything. In fact, it's in a perfect tense, meaning that when you received it, at that point of receiving Christ, you have been given everything you need for the rest of eternity. And though life is difficult here at times, and we stray, we're wanderers at times, we're prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love at times, He is enough. And you find satisfaction when you finally hit your knees again and say, Lord, I've been trying to live outside of you. 
I've been trying to manage my marriage, my life, my children, my business, whatever it is. I've been trying to manage it without you being in the center, and it doesn't work. Will you forgive me? Will you take first place again? You're completed in Christ. I love the story. It's such a reminder of the greatness of God. I pray you encourage. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for loving us when we were just a bunch of lost sheep wandering around, maybe looking for a magic trick or a free meal or whatever. We're just like these people, Lord. But while we are still in this condition, while we're still in our blood, while we're still helpless, Lord, Jesus, you came and you flooded your truth into our hearts. Your spirit just pushed, illuminated, brightened, gave us new life, Lord. And we found ourselves complete in Jesus. And Father, life is tough here. We're sinners and we're in a fallen world that isn't getting any better we would pray, Lord, that you would give us strength to look towards your Son. Give us strength to walk in a pleasing way to him because he's worthy of it. And Lord, we pray that you would always keep the life of Christ and his truth and Christ-centeredness in front of us. And we strive to think not only here in this hour in church on Sundays, but throughout the week, Lord. That Sunday school becomes Monday school and Tuesday school, Lord. And we step in line right behind that chief shepherd. Get right behind, right in his shadow, right in his dust. Help us walk with him, Lord. So much to learn from him. Thank you for your grace and mercy, Lord. May you be glorified as we celebrate your table. In Jesus' name, amen.